Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning, friends and family. Reading from Hebrews 11, 1 through 13. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he was condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Please be seated. As we continue our letter, our study through this letter of Hebrews, we come to a very familiar passage. This is probably the most familiar part of Hebrews. We're in chapter 11 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews 11. We actually like to work through the text. Now, if you picked up a manuscript, you note that we're covering the entire chapter this morning. So we've warned the nursery workers to buckle up, put in a movie, break out the snacks. But we're actually not going to actually be working through every verse in detail just for the length of it. But throughout this letter, the authors continually exhorted his audience to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to keep believing in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is presented in Hebrews as God's final word to humanity, to mankind. And that's all the way back in Hebrews 1. And as such, as we trace through the letter of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the better priest in chapter 7 and 8 who offers a better sacrifice all the way through. And we see this repeated over and over in 7, 8, 9, and 10. 
He mediates a better covenant and acted on better promises. And thus we are encouraged last week from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it was suggested last week that these three concepts are further explored in these next three chapters. So chapter 11, our chapter this morning, is an illustration. Here's what it looks like to draw near to God with a true heart of faith. Chapter 12 picks up the theme of endurance and how we will continue to hope in God based on His character, regardless of the circumstances we may be facing. And chapter 13 encourages us to love one another on the horizontal in tangible ways. And so this entire chapter that we have before us this morning, Hebrews 11, is one lengthy illustration highlighting the faith. Here's what faith in Jesus looks like throughout the storyline of Scripture. So we're going to get this highlight reel, this smorgasbord of here's what faith looks like all the way from Genesis to the present of writing of Hebrews. Now, I really personally, and I think I can prove this from Scripture, we're not going to take the time to look up some of these references, but I think First Peter, he mentions it in his first chapter as well, but I don't think all of the Old Testament believers understood the depth or all the details of what they were truly hoping in. They knew that one day the promises would be fulfilled, but I don't think they fully understood how. And yet, what we're going to find the author of Hebrews doing is highlighting and accenting some really exciting ways in which these Old Testament believers were looking to Jesus. I don't think that they had all those details as cleanly as the author of Hebrews is pointing out. But I am convinced that regardless of whether or not they saw how this thing would play out in real time, their confidence was in God. They believed the promises of God that they would be fulfilled because they believed in God. They were convinced that these promises were rooted in the nature, character, and attributes of God. They took God at His word because they simply believed the one who made the promises. And they believed that He had the ability and He would come good on those promises because He is the promiser, these promises would be fulfilled. I'm convinced that they believed that. Whether they knew all the details of how it would take place, I'm not too sure about. So this morning, as we consider this long illustration on faith and looking at some examples that Hebrews chapter 6 says, these are worth imitating. As we do that this morning, this will not be an exhaustive or systematic exposition on the theme or topic of faith. We're going to stick to the letter of Hebrews. Now, we could go all over the Bible and look at faith. And that's what he's doing for us in this long illustration. He's condensing this. This is like the, the trailer. It's a teaser. It's given us, here's some snippets that are going on that are worth noting So we'll consider this morning how the author describes faith, kind of a definition we'll look at, and then how he emphasizes the impact 
that faith has on our daily lives. Then we're going to look at something really interesting. We're going to consider the paradox of faith and then ultimately the completion of faith. And so we're going to see how faith strengthens us to endure regardless of the circumstances. So that's what's going on in our study this morning as we meditate on Hebrews 11 together. But let's begin where the author of Hebrews begins in this chapter, verse 1. Here's the description of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the ESV and the New American Standard Bible translate this the exact same way. I grew up in the King James Bible, and it translates this verse this way. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. The Net Bible translates it this way. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. And so this this Greek word faith, it's defined as or described as what can be believed. It's a state of certainty with regard to belief. Now, this is really an abstract concept, and it has abstract and concrete aspects to it. Abstractly, it's confidence or trusting, referring to persons, relations, or things. And concretely, it means a guarantee. This guarantee provides or creates the possibility of trust. Because this guarantee is in place, now we can trust It's something that now we can rely on because this guarantee is in place. We can have the assurance of reliability because of this guarantee. So there's an abstract concept and there's some concrete realities to this idea of faith. But in all reality, faith is one of those abstract concepts. Those are the abstract concepts that we have to choose to believe, try to teach our kids. You know, there's other tons of abstract concepts throughout Scripture and in everyday life. But faith is one of those abstract concepts, and it generally refers to a strong belief or trust in something without the need for proof or evidence. So it's an abstract concept where we're believing, we're trusting in something without the need for proof or evidence. And yet, what we see in Hebrews 11.1, the very description or definition of faith actually has these kind of concrete words where the author of Hebrews gives us language of confidence, assurance, conviction, and evidence. So by very definition, you've heard of the term blind faith? By very definition or description, the faith that we have is not a blind faith. It's not. We get to draw near to God with this full assurance and confidence and hope, but it's not a blind faith. So even though you have this abstract and concrete meanings coming together, by definition, we don't have a blind faith. We actually have a faith that has the ability to see the invisible with greater clarity. That's the kind of faith we have. And that's the kind of faith that is displayed throughout the letter of of Hebrews and specifically illustrated here in chapter 11. You're going to see people who have the ability to make choices, to live a certain way, trusting God, believing Him, and it's as if they're living with that thing being a reality. They're able to see the invisible with greater clarity. That's the kind of faith we have. This is a faith 
that sees, sees what the common person doesn't see. The average person, and specifically the unbelieving person, they can't see. And we're looked at as nuts. We're, we're the crazies because we believe that God spoke everything into existence. I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of the people who are mentioned in this chapter were, were looked at with skepticism and cross-eyed and had tons of pushback from family and friends because some of the choices that they made based on the circumstances and, you know, how do you respond when someone says to you, yeah, I heard God, God spoke to me or I heard a voice or I had a dream and then their whole life is altered because of that? This was taking place in Hebrews 11. And we're going, I don't think I'm going to respond that way. And yet that's exactly how we're called to respond throughout Scripture. So when it comes to faith, Scripture is emphasizing the object of our faith or the source of our faith. Faith is never about the amount, but the faith, our faith is, the focus of it is where it's placed. So don't worry about, the, do I have enough faith or trying to measure or gauge this faith. It's not about that. And yet, we can be haunted by those voices, right? Those doubts, those insecurities of whether or not we have enough faith, as if our faith can be measured, filled up, or emptied out. Those doubts and insecurities gnaw at us. And yet, there's other voices we hear, the voices of guilt and shame, telling us that if we just had enough faith, if we just had a little bit more faith, then, and you can go in and fill in the blank, if you just had enough faith, then those circumstances would change or this really wouldn't have happened to you or your family. And you all have those what-ifs kind of a thing. And if we didn't work through the text and we were into guilt and manipulation and arm twisting, we could really leverage a passage like this to get you to do just about anything. But that's not what we do, and we don't believe that the Scripture is teaching that. It's not about the amount of faith, but where is your faith? Who or what are you trusting in? That's really, when it comes to faith, that's the question. What are you believing? Who are you believing? That's what this all comes down to. So we could pack it up and walk home right now, but I think it's really to our advantage if we spend some time meditating on some other concepts that we have and aspects. Throughout Hebrews, the author is encouraging his audience to believe that Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah. That's what's going on. And he's encouraging them to keep believing. Jesus is, and he uses words like, he is our confession. He is our confidence. He is our hope. He's our high priest. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant with better promises because he's the better sacrifice that secured this relationship by which we draw near to God. That's what's going on all throughout Hebrews. And so who or what are we trusting in? Now, even though this is one lengthy illustration, Hebrews 11, I'm just going to share in another by way of illustration so we can wrap our minds around this. I'm a, Pastor Pat likes to bring in food into the, the illustration and analogy. 
and I resonate with that. And I am a big fan of the buffet. Any buffet, just about. It's got to be a good one, though, right? There's some average, mediocre, and subpar buffets. You go there once, and you're like, I'm never going back there again. But a good buffet, a salad bar with all the toppings, so you can just sprinkle just a little bit of lettuce and then load on the toppings. That's a good salad bar, right? And you pick and choose, and it's great. Or a breakfast buffet with endless bacon, right? Bottomless bacon, Two words have never been more gloriously put together. Bottomless, bacon, right? Chicken and waffles, biscuits and gravy, you know, keep it coming. And time would fail me to tell of all the other glories of a Chinese buffet, right? You know it, you know, you know Golden Corral. We call it at, you know, the elder level, the golden calf or the golden idol. I mean, it's just like you pull up a chair and worship happens, folks, Right? The buffet is an amazing thing, you know, but even thinking about like the mysteries of a floating buffet, have you ever taken a cruise? That's all that is. They stop at different ports, but that whole thing from start to finish is one just big buffet. Glorious stuff. And you're like, why are you bringing this out? Well, that's what we're doing this morning. And this illustration is one big, long, endless buffet. All right? And it's very much an impossibility for us to experience it all in one sitting. So this illustrative buffet, we pull up to it, and if we're going to get the most out of it, there's multiple meals taking place. So you're encouraged to go back and read it in one sitting and start looking at the Old Testament passages and exploring the lives that are represented here and highlighted here, because we're not going to take the time to do that this morning. It would take us forever to be able to go through all of these And I know that your attention span isn't quite as long to be able to do that. So my desire for us today is that we would taste and see how faith has impacted the lives of many throughout the storyline of Scripture. That's what I believe the author is doing. Help us get a glimpse. Help us taste and see how these individuals, real people like you and me, have been impacted throughout the storyline of Scripture. They've been challenged to believe God, to take Him at His word. And so we're going to look, on, look at this this morning. But if we focus and fixate on those who are highlighted and we miss seeing Jesus, then we think we've missed the point of Hebrews 11. So we can make, we call this what? The hall of faith. And we mark these individuals as heroes of the faith. And yet we can look at them and miss Jesus. That would be a tragedy. So let's taste and see how faith is on display in this text, and then let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So let's move on to the impact of faith. The bulk of this letter describes individuals who have walked with God, they believe God, they've trusted God. So immediately following verse 1, the author tells us that our ancient ancestors were commended for their faith. Look at verse 2. For by it, this faith that he just describes, the people of old received their commendation. This commendation from God regarding faith shows up in verses 2, verses 4, verses 5, verse 39. And this word means to be well testified of, to obtain a good report. We also get from this word to bear witness, and ultimately it's the same word as martyr. 
Okay, so we're going to see that play out more next week. But this commendation for faith, it means that they were counted or reckoned as righteous. Now we see that show up in Genesis 15 as God interacts with Abraham. He counts his faith as righteousness. We see that in Romans 4 as well. Faith impacts our lives in tangible ways. Even though it may be an abstract, comp, uh, you know, this, this idea or definition or dis- description, faith causes us to live in certain ways. It influences the choices that we make on a daily basis. Faith actually produces works, activity, services. These, this is the consequence or the impact of our faith. Because we believe, we live a certain way. It affects the way we, we think in the way that we respond to people. Faith does that. How we live is a consequence of who we believe and what we believe. How we live is a consequence of who and what we believe. And this audience is continually called back to keep believing in Jesus. You might tire of us speaking of Jesus and the gospel and grace, but the audience, the original audience, that's what they had to keep being told. That's what I need to hear on a daily basis, to keep believing in Jesus. And so this entire section is one big illustration that shows us here's the impact of faith in the lives of real people, and we forget that they're just like us. We read this and we're like, oh my goodness, this is impressive, this is amazing, this is something what took place. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I'd respond that way. Or they must be super saints, super human. They must have this immeasurable amount of faith. And I just have this little itty-bitty faith. Remember, it's not about the amount. And we're not meant to idolize these individuals. But we are shown and demonstrated by this chapter that people just like you and me responded to God in faith and it impacted their lives on a daily basis. So here's some of the ways in this chapter that faith impacts It impacted their lives in the past, and it impacts our lives in similar ways. So look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the very first thing that we see by way of impact is the creation account. Our origin story is taken by faith. So whether you believe what the Bible says in the creation account, that God spoke all this stuff into existence, or you believe evolutionary thought and theory, or whatever you believe in between that spectrum, that's all by faith. That's all by faith. Our origin story is by faith. In verses 5 and 6, Faith makes us pleasing to God. We read about Enoch. Enoch was one of those people that as a kid I was just fascinated with. There's just a couple verses on Enoch. And what's Enoch's testimony? He enjoyed God. The guy lived for about 300 plus years. He enjoyed God and God took him. Because this guy delighted in God. I'm like, I want to be that guy as a kid. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go that route. 
But Enoch has this reputation of being pleasing to God. And then we launch into verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. See, we often want the stuff from God, the things. Make these circumstances work out this way, change that person, and remove this thing from my life, right? And bring the addition of that. But those who are diligently seeking God, he says, receive the reward. You know what the reward is? God. Those who are diligently seeking him, we, we often turn to the Psalms and it talks about, you know, us, you know, God giving us the desires of our heart. Well, if our delight is in him, guess what the desires of our heart are? Him. He is the reward. And yet we want all this other stuff and we forget about the giver of this stuff. And so faith causes us not only to be pleasing to God, but to draw near to God. There's this relational aspect to things. We're going to focus on one of these individuals. Faith believes the promises of God. Faith believes in the promises of God. That causes people to live with an anticipation of the promise actually being fulfilled. It's like they can live as if that thing is realized right now, even though it's not. It's that clear. It's almost that tangible to them. So believing God's promises impacts our worldview in a number of ways. Well, let's consider Abraham for a second. In verse 8, God asked Abraham to do a pretty impossible thing, but to leave what he knew and was comfortable with, to leave his homeland. And the text says he didn't know where he was going. He just went. He left at God's command. So he left where he was comfortable. He left where he felt safe. He left where all his friends and family were. And they're like, where are you going? I'm just going. God told me to. And we're like, you're nuts. The text says that's faith. He believed God. He took God at his word. And it caused him to act. There was an impact. And then the text describes what that looks like. In verse 9, Abraham lived in the land of promise as a foreigner. In verse 13, it says that he was a stranger and an exile in this land. This is the land that God promised him, and he went. He didn't know where it was. He didn't have GPS coordinates, and he didn't have, here's the whole itinerary, and here's every stop along the way, and here's what you're going to expect. Here's the full, full package when you arrive. No, he had to take God by faith every step of the way. And it's not that he just jumped on a plane in Ur and landed up in Jerusalem. That's not what happened. There's a long journey that takes place. And verse 10 tells us that he lived looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and architect is God. He was living looking for the permanent city, a city that God built. In verses 14 and 16, He lived in pursuit of a homeland. He desired a better country, a heavenly one. Abraham believed the promises of God that all of this would be his. It would be a reality. Why did he believe the promises of God? Because faith believes the character of God. Abraham believed the promises of God because he believed the one who was making the promise. He believed in the character of God. Faith in the promise is actually believing the one who makes the promise. So the nature, the character, the attributes 
of God aligned with his ability to accomplish that which he promised. So Abraham was taking God at his word. And that's why we had for the call to worship this morning, Hebrews 6. Let's be reminded of this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he, could, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have this anchor and steadfast hope, this confidence in the God who cannot lie. Often you'll hear in conversation when people are trying to prove a point and determine that they're not lying and tell the truthfulness and verify this thing, they say things like, God is my witness, right? Like, believe me because I'm, I'm swearing. Well, God does the same thing, and he swears by himself, and he can't lie. And he says, when I'm going to make a promise to you, my word's good. As a young boy, I had complete confidence in my father. My dad was and in many ways still is my hero. So as early as age three or four, I could remember just many times just launching myself off of, you know, we get all freaked out when, when the kids are running up here because we don't want them to fall and whatever. But this type of thing, I would have loved as a kid. There's no railing, whatever, and my dad could stand, and I would say, go back just a little bit further, and he'd say, you know, I catch you. So I would run and launch myself off of things. It would be walls. It would be, you know, different ledges. It didn't matter what the ob- object was. And it didn't matter what the height was. So regardless of height, I would just launch myself into the waiting arms of my dad. Why? I simply believed the one who said to me, jump. He had outstretched arms and he said, jump, I'll catch you. You will not fall. Nothing will hurt you. Where was my confidence? What was I believing? What was I trusting? Sure, what he said, the promise, absolutely, but my confidence was in him. And I knew my dad was not going to fail me. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, can we not trust the one with outstretched arms invites us to come? He says, I'm the better sacrifice of a better covenant and I've made a way and I'm inviting you to draw near with a true heart of faith. You can believe the one making this promise. That's what Hebrews is doing. And now it's being illustrated. And this is what happens here in verse 11 and 12 with Sarah. Listen to the language here in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age. Why? Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah considered the one who made the promise faithful. He's going to come good on that promise. And Abraham, in verses 17 through 19. Now, this illustration is so... I think this is one of the most challenging aspects 
in all of Scripture. This is one of the most daring things. It's one of the darkest things. But for God to ask Abraham after he said, here's your son of the promise, all the nations will be blessed by him, and my mark is going to be on him, and now this son shows up, and God says, I want you to sacrifice a son of whom which I promise that all of this will come to fruition. And how does Abraham respond? Verses 17 through 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. I can't wrap my mind around that. What God called Abraham to do, and Abraham was so confident in the one who's made the promises that even though this is irrational, illogical, doesn't make sense at all, he's going to follow through with it because he believed that God could, if he's going to kill him, he's going to raise him up. Such confidence in the one who's making the promise. So here's some of the highlight reels, some things that faith produces throughout this passage. And you can go and verify them by looking them up and seeing how the dots are connected. But faith produces an obedience to God regardless of how ridiculous or illogical to ask. And that's what's going on with Abraham in my mind. This is ridiculous and illogical. And yet faith produces an obedience to God. It produces a confidence in God. It produces a worldview that causes those who believe to live with anticipation of the next life. This is what we're guilty of, folks. Faith causes us to live in anticipation of not just this life, but the life which is to come. We're trusting that a Messiah died on our behalf to save us from sin and death, and he's preparing a place, and we're going to one day be with him. We're waiting for that day. We long for that day. We want that day to be today. Before I get done speaking, you're going, let's go. That's what you're believing. That's what you're trusting. Faith causes that in you, to believe. Faith produces a fear of God that overrides the fear of man, regardless of status whether it's a king or a pharaoh or whoever, we fear God more than we fear man. Faith produces a courage to face danger, hardship, suffering, persecution. Faith produces an endurance that perseveres to the end. So faith really is the fuel of endurance And as we consider the context, these believers are being exhorted to endure all kinds of sufferings, all kinds of pressures, all kinds of difficult circumstances by faith in Jesus and because of their faith in Jesus. It's because their faith in Jesus that they're facing all this hardship. And the author is saying, keep believing Jesus. By your faith in Jesus, you can endure. This is what we pray on a weekly basis for the persecuted church. We might not be able to resonate with this text in the same way that they do, but this would be so encouraging, so refreshing, so life-giving to them because all they know is persecution and suffering and hardship and difficulty. Why? Because they believe Jesus. Not because they've done something stupid and deserve these consequences, but because they simply believe Jesus. 
in our audience was facing persecution by the hands of their own countrymen, their own people, the Jews. Why? Because they simply believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so the author keeps encouraging them to, you've believed Jesus, hold fast to Jesus. He is your confession. Keep believing him without wavering. What we heard last week, you have need for endurance right now. Keep enduring. Remember when you first believed, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, you were, you were imprisoned and you, you journeyed with people who were imprisoned and you were willing to go through all of this. Keep being willing to go through all of this. He reminds them then that they're not alone. He says, imitate the faith of those who've gone before you. And this is the chapter in which he illustrates that. But this is the part where it gets challenging when we discuss the paradox of faith. Now, this is going on all throughout this chapter, but just focusing on verses 29 through 39, the paradox of faith is a very challenging concept when it comes to meditating on Hebrews 11. Why? The majority of this illustration on faith is accenting the miraculous. And we think, hey, it's pretty cool to see how these people responded and they experienced faith, and faith allowed them to experience the miraculous. But the paradox begins to hit home when we research the rest of their lives and we realize that most of their lives were lived in the mundane and the ordinary. They didn't all live on the miraculous high. Most of their life was like ours, living in the mundane and the ordinary by faith. And then this illustration takes a very dark turn, a corner, an alley, a a darkness that we don't want to explore as we consider how faith gives the ability to endure through misery and perhaps even martyrdom. So faith gives the ability to experience the miraculous. We all want the extraordinary, right? And we would often only resonate with faith when regarding the miraculous. Everything else doesn't seem to make the faith cut. But, oh, look at what God did in this situation. This person was healed and this person, you know, and you fill in the blank and we see all throughout this illustration some really cool things. So let's consider the miraculous. And this is just a little bit of what's going on. They crossed, in verse 29, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. That's pretty impressive, folks, right? This is a summary statement of saying everything that God did miraculously in Exodus in bringing the children of Egypt out from under the authority of Pharaoh. They've been slaves for 400 plus years, and now they're moving out, and all the signs and wonders and the plagues happened. Well, now they get to, you know, we talk about, you know, being between a rock and a hard place. They're between an army that's going to kill them or bring them back to slavery and an incrossable Red Sea. Imagine, if you will, we're all on the bank of Lake Michigan in Milwaukee, and Lake Michigan opens up, and we walk over toward Grand Rapids on dry land. That's the visual, okay? So now that's miraculous. These are the stories you hear as a kid, and you're like, oh, that'd be so cool to be running through and putting your hand in the, the side. Just would be awesome. But God does this. Faith gives them the ability to believe God and to go through on dry land. Then they did another impossible thing is, 
you know, they watched this fortified city, the walls just crumble in verse 30, the walls of Jericho. And they didn't do anything. It's not because they made these impressive battering rams or built these big siege mounds or whatever. It was they walked around the city, they obeyed God, they believed God, they trusted him, and the walls fell. And we're like, that's miraculous. Back in 11 and 12 with Sarah, women gave birth decades past their prime. Other women, in verse 35, received back their dead, resurrected. What? Their kid dies and... They miraculously come back. Verse 31, the rescue of Rahab. That's pretty miraculous. She should have been slaughtered with the rest in Jericho, and yet this pagan prostitute, by faith, becomes part of the promise of God and seeing that fulfilled. And then here's what the author says. This is pretty cool. In verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, and on and on and on. There's all these different examples of the miraculous taking place by faith. Time would fail. And yet, faith also gives us the ability to live through the mundane, the ordinary. It doesn't just give us the ability to experience the extraordinary by faith, but it gives us the ability to live through the mundane and the ordinary. Think about it for a second. This is just a highlight reel emphasizing some miraculous that's taken place in the lives of certain individuals throughout Scripture. But regardless of who's named or alluded to in this text this morning, most of their lives were marked by the ordinary, the simple, the routine. They're just like you and me. They breathe oxygen, they bleed red, okay? Their lives were lived providing for their families. They got up, they went to work, they came home. They're trying to survive. They're trying to enjoy the simple things in life. And they did it all without iPhone and Internet. They did it without Nintendo Switches and other gaming consoles. They did it without TVs and heated seats in their cars. They did it without fast food and running water. Think about it. We want to make personal application. Their lives were like the kinds of camping trips I like to go on and kind of rough it. Even then, I'm not roughing it. And for them, they just called it today. Their normal life was mundane and routine. And the text reminds us that faith allows us to live the mundane and the routine, the ordinary life by faith. And interspersed through that is the miraculous. We see God do some pretty cool things. Words like luxury and leisure, those weren't part of their vocabulary. And yet, they trusted God, they believed Him, they took Him at His word. And then faith gives us the ability to endure through misery and martyrdom. That's kind of scary. This is the scary part. This is the part of the text that we like to ignore, rush through, we treat it kind of like the genealogies and other parts of Scripture. It's like, ah, we'll just skip over that. I can't pronounce the names anyway, right? But now we get to this place where faith gives the ability to endure through misery and martyrdom. Look at how the back half of verse 35 and following read. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release in verse 35. In 36, others suffered mocking and flogging 
even chains of imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned, sawn in two, and killed by the sword. Verse 37, their clothing wasn't the elite. You know, it wasn't the best, you know, places. They were going about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute and afflicted. They were mistreated. In verse 38, says that they wandered deserts and mountains and they found refuge in caves of the earth by faith. Trusting God. Circumstances were dark. It's not what any of us would choose. It's not what they would have chose, but they're playing the hand they're dealt. This last section is particularly difficult for us to swallow, right? If we're continuing with the buffet illustration, this is the thing that would sit on the buffet and no one would touch it, right? This is the thing that you're like, ew, the sight of it is repulsive. The smell of it, the texture, we're not touching that. The only way I'm eating that is if it's forced on me. And even then we're choking it down. And that's what the rest of this text is highlighting. We want the miraculous and the extraordinary. We want that. And we're like, yeah, I can celebrate that. I can get behind that by faith. You know, and I'll, I don't know, I guess I'm willing to accept living the ordinary by faith. I can do the mundane. I can do the nine to five. I can do the same thing over and over and not a whole lot's changing. I can do that. But misery, suffering, persecution, possible martyrdom by faith. We struggle with that concept. And yet, look at how verse 38 describes those individuals who did all the suffering by faith, believing in Jesus as the Messiah. What does verse 38 say? Of whom the world was not worthy. The world wasn't even worthy of this kind of faith and action. You hear stories of people who are being martyred and persecuted, praying for those who are inflicting pain, hardship, agony, and torture on them, praying for their salvation, praying for them to come to faith in Christ, loving them regardless of what they've been receiving. This section wraps up in verses 39 and 40 with the completion of faith. So the conclusion here is a really interesting reality check. He's just been highlighting all these individuals and celebrating their faith in God. They believe the promises of God because they believe the person of God. And yet, verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Something very similar is said in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Faith is celebrated, it's highlighted, it's accented. The, the miraculous, extraordinary is going on. The ordinary and mundane is going on. And yet the completely scary is taking place. And he says, all of these have died in faith, not receiving the promises. And yet they continued to believe God. They trusted God. They walked with God. They were pleasing to God. They enjoyed this relationship with God, and yet they didn't live with the reality of these things. And it's like, wait a second. They lived this way, and they never saw the promise fulfilled in their lifetime. They didn't. 
What promises were they waiting for? What were they anticipating? What were they hoping in? What were they longing for? What were they believing that one day would be reality for them? That the long-awaited promised Messiah would come and crush the serpent. And then he'd restore this world to its rightful place. The promise we got way back in Genesis 3, 15, and 21. The serpent crusher would come and make everything right. You hear this echoing when, when Jesus is about ready to ascend after the resurrection. In Acts 1, 6 through 11, when the disciples ask Jesus, Is it now? Is it time that you're going to set up the kingdom? Are you going to do this at this point? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Just trust me, you're going to be my witnesses. Same thing that's going on here, and that word witness is martyr. You're going to be my witnesses. Just believe me, trust me. But verse 40 tells us why. Why they lived this entire thing, believing God, hoping in Him, trusting in Him, and yet they didn't receive what was promised. Why? Since God had provided something better for us. God provided something better for us. So the recipients of this letter, and we're included in that as well, God provided some. They didn't get to receive the promise because we were on God's radar way back then. Right? They had to live through all of this stuff so that we could be included in this promise since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All we know is fulfillment, right? We've got the completed revelation, the Scripture from God. We have the privilege of living under the new covenant. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have this legacy of faith, and yet they lived anticipating the promised Messiah while we live in faith in the finished work of the Messiah. See, Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire storyline of Scripture. He permeates the whole. The entire Old Testament, the entire Old Covenant funnels down to Jesus, and the entire New Covenant flows from Jesus. So this whole section ends with one word, this word perfect, that they're not going to be made perfect apart from us being part of that. And together, we're going to see that perfection take place. Well, what is that? This being made perfect together means to finish, to bring to an end, to fulfill. It signifies the idea of fully accomplishing So by faith, all believers, Old Covenant and New Covenant, will share in the reward and experience the fulfillment of the promises of God together for all eternity. Just as they lived in anticipation of the Messiah, so too today we live in anticipation of the Messiah, the one who promised and said, I'm going to my Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. We're living with anticipation of that day. And guess what? Some of our brothers and sisters have died not seeing the realization of that. We have funerals. People pass away believing God, believing the promise, yet they didn't see the reality of it in their lifetime. 
and yet they're included and they're part of this promise. One day, God will return and he will right-size all of this. He will fulfill and complete everything that he promised. Now, if you have the manuscript, you can look at, we're not going to take the time to do this, but tracing this idea of perfect, being completed, bringing this thing to fulfillment, you can see that on display in the manuscript. I don't lay out every single reference to this, but a lot of them from chapter 7 all the way through 11. You're going to see some, some really neat dots being connected. But as we wrap up this study this morning, we would be amiss if we elevated these individuals that we you know, can highlight and look at by illustration in Hebrews 11, and we focus on them and we fail to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. So as we move into chapter 12, it says, Therefore, based on everything that you've just heard, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So this lengthy illustration in Hebrews 11 is meant to encourage you to keep living by faith. Keep trusting the promises of God because you believe the character of God. I could ask you, we could take some time to testify to say, how have you seen the miraculous on display in your life? Because you've seen moments of miraculous, God working. And yet, how do you see God working amidst the mundane and ordinary in your life? Maybe you're one of the few that has experienced suffering because you name the name of Christ. You face some form of persecution. Now, I know most of us really probably haven't, but some of us have. So I'd encourage you to, if you explore this further with your family or around the dinner table or throughout the week, is to take the time and explore the Old Testament passages that are connected to this text. Go and read in Genesis and Exodus and 1 Samuel and Chronicles and, and start seeing the lives that were lived and how these individuals responded to God and what their initial response is and then connect it to what we see on display in Hebrews 11. I'd also encourage you, something that I learned in college is to start building a biography of God. Say, what in the world is that? Well, as God is doing some pretty cool things in your life, Start taking note of that. Jot that down. Journal it. Figure out ways to mark that. As you're reading through the text of Scripture, note the names of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, the ways that God has shown up and He works because when you go through suffering, those are the things that you can cling to. This is who promised, and He is faithful. The faith strengthens us to live in anticipation of the return of our Savior. We long for that day. So until that day, may our faith continue to be strengthened. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text of Hebrews 11. Thank you for the recipients, the, the audience that this was written to. Because we're in mind here. 
that apart from all of these Old Testament believers who, who trusted you, they don't get to experience something apart from us. And we long for that day when you return and you set all of this right. Until then, strengthen us to live by faith, whether we feel like the extraordinary is taking place or whether we're living in the ordinary, mundane throes of life. And if perchance we end up facing persecution, suffering, and potential martyrdom for the name of Jesus, may we even do that by faith. So strengthen and encourage us with who you are, that we would draw near to you with a true heart of faith and full assurance that you've got this. In Christ's name, amen.